Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast. I'm uh, Peter Bruckner, aka Brookie, and uh, he's Burjo. How are you, Burjo? Good, Brookie. Yourself? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm pretty good. Do you want to introduce our guest for today? Yes, it gives me great uh, great pleasure to introduce a fellow Shire boy from from Sydney, uh, Aaron Harris. Welcome, Aaron. Hello, Burjo. Hello, Brookie. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, Aaron, uh, we're talking to Aaron, who's in uh, in England, and uh, tell us your story about how you went from the Shire to uh, to London. Okay, uh, a little bit of a tedious journey, but I'll try and be as succinct as possible. Uh, so, following school, ended up going and studying um, physiotherapy at, at Sydney Uni. Um, had five years where I uh, worked in the public hospitals after that. Um, so I had a really good time and then yeah, had a year in private practice. Always had a desire to go into sports at, at that stage and really enjoyed my sport, probably more, more playing sport at that stage rather than, than working in sports. Um, in the meantime, a lot of my good friends were making their way over to the UK and having a great time and sending back reports about all the magnificent places they were going to and the great things that they were doing. So eventually, yeah, found myself over there at probably, yeah, I think it was 27. So by that stage, you have a little bit of life experience behind you and, uh, yeah, maybe a, a little bit more money and um, a little bit more common sense, although that was probably lack <laughs> for me. Um, and had, yeah, a, a really good time where I didn't work for a period, um, probably, yeah, six, seven, eight months, um, magnificent, and then found myself in the NHS thinking, yeah, I need to stay over in the UK. My friends are here. We're all having a great time. Worked three years in the NHS and then found my way into Fulham's Academy, um, Fulham Football Club. In their academy there, there were some really good people um, that I managed to, to work with there and some, some good players and staff that I managed to learn from in a, in a part-time capacity. And then, yeah, got myself um, an offer of a full-time role Stayed there working at Fulham for three and a half years and, yeah, really enjoyed working in the football environment. Um, I'd grown up, at, so where I say football, I guess, uh, yeah, soccer. Yep. Um, I'd grown up in a, a soccer household at home, which, as Burjo would testify, in the Shire is perhaps fairly rare. <laughs> um, yeah, where maybe other sports have a little bit more of an emphasis, especially as you get older. Um, and then went on. Um, and had 11 years at Tottenham. Um, a few of those those years where Burjo was across the divide, um, wearing red, where I was wearing <laughs> white and blue. And yeah, from there started to feel the lure a little bit more towards um, so first team after I'd had probably 14 and a half years working in different academy settings. And yeah, the past four seasons I found myself at QPR. Um, so working in the championship just as the, the head physio there. So certainly some different challenges along the way, um, but, yeah, quite happy with, with where I'm at at the moment and enjoying the challenges of, of COVID and, and post-COVID sports medicine. Aaron, just to go on, uh, I was just going yeah. to butt in there, sorry, but maybe you could just explain to our, our our listeners a little bit about the academy set up at these uh, at these big uh, big clubs because it's not something that we're that familiar with in in Australia although there are a few little academies but just just describe uh, how the academies are set up because they're uh, they're massive sort of uh, institutions really aren't they 
Yeah, they are. And, and probably even in the time that I've been working within academies, I've really seen them grow. And I think at different stages, there's probably been a lot of debate about um, whether as they grow and they get loads and loads more staff, do they become more efficient? Um, do they, do, does everyone that's working in them make the, the ship move faster, so to speak? Um, but basically, the, the academies, they're, um, they're set up um, for players in a in a part-time capacity um, to come in as well as their schooling from ages 9 through to 16. From there, the boys um, go full-time generally from 16 um, through to 18 where they're considered something called scholars. Um, and then uh, after the two years of their scholarship, they're then eligible um, to become a, a, a pro. Um, which probably the, the initial couple of years where they're a pro, they might still be yeah, under the, the constructs of the academy set up like through to about 2021. So, yeah, they're, I mean, they're enormous organisations. Um, there are various um, classification systems of the different academies. Um, so there's something called the Elite Player Performance Plan that the Premier League initiated um, with the FA, and I, I think there's four different gradings, categories one through to four, and I think as it stands, there might be about 28 category one academies, which as a rough rule of thumb probably tends to be um, 16 to 18 of, of maybe your Premier League academies with a, yeah maybe another eight to 10 of the, the championship and League One clubs with their academies. So that grading system perhaps relates to a number of things. Um, it, it might relate to how many players they've brought through in the past, what the facilities are, what their games program is, um, other things like education, how do they look after players in terms of that, what the staffing is. So, yeah, they're, they're very, very big organisations, I, I think, um, what would be the closest thing that I could liken it to would maybe be some of the US like scholarship systems um, when they go to college, um, certainly when the boys get to be 16 through to 20. Um, and I guess what they enable is they just give a little bit more competition um, and expose some young players perhaps to, to better resources and maybe opportunities at a younger age. Um, something that particularly has been pushed, I would say, over the last 14, 15 years has been that concept of foreign competition. So if you consider what happens in the Premier League, a lot of the players um, are having to compete, uh, a lot of the young players are having to compete with players all over the world, um, like really to get a position in a Premier League club or for that matter, sometimes even in a championship club. So it exposes them to that competition. Um, Excuse me, that was my phone going off there. <laughs> Full time. Um, yeah. I'm wondering whether that's time to tell me to, to be quiet. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it, it exposes them to top, yeah, I, I guess, national competition, European competition. And certainly when I was at Spurs, we were going to Central America, um, North America, um, Asia, um, Africa. So, yeah, they're quite incredible, I think, the opportunities that they offer, not just for players, but also for staff. Obviously, the clubs love to uh, bring players through their academy into their Premier League team because, A, they're cheap. Uh, they don't have to pay millions of pounds for them on the, on the transfer market. Um, tell us your experience of a couple of players uh, maybe who came through the Tottenham Academy who, made, who went through to uh, 
to, to make it in the Premier League? And what were the sort of the qualities do you think that uh, that made them stand out? Yeah, I, I think that there's very different pathways, I would say, for all of the players. And, and I think that's probably synonymous with all sports. Um, but yeah, maybe just to give a little bit of an insight um, into some of the boys that have come through and yeah, played at Premier League level and even international level and had fairly long careers. Um, maybe the, the most high-profile one that's come through Tottenham has been Harry Kane. So um, I would have seen him around the time that he was 14 or 15. Um, he was someone that wouldn't have been top of the group. He's someone who I would say would be a late developer, um, physically not um, outstanding in, yeah, according to relative to the rest of his group. Um, but what he had is he had like one area, I suppose, of ab absolute excellence. So even at that age, he was hugely competitive. So I know you talk about, right, what, what are some of the main factors that you see? Well, he was hugely competitive. He was also hugely driven to continue getting better. Um, and then I think if you add that um, to the fact that he was a, a very like good finisher and a, a very clean ball striker at a very young age, um, yeah, that, that I suppose combined um, to help him yeah, progress through as he did. But it, really the, the key thing I, I feel um, with him and that those who have far more expertise than me on the coaching side um, was just that competitiveness and that desire to improve. Um, and I thought the way that the coaches worked with the players there was was fantastic as well, um, which was headed up by John McDermott, who's yeah now actually, um, I think, technical director of the FA. So, yeah, I suppose that, that was Harry. And um, for me, coming from a background where I'd always looked at um, players or people in top-level sport as being hugely athletic and is it the most athletic ones that always go on um, and have the most success. Well, that Harry was certainly um, yeah, very different to that and, and he made himself a better athlete like through his competitiveness and the way he'd work. And I think also yeah, through the training stimulus he got, um, perhaps not just in the academy, but then when he was transferred through to Maurizio Pochettino's first team, who had a, yeah, a really good physical program, I, I, I felt. Um, then we've got a, a, another young player, um, Andros Townsend. He's still playing in the Premier League at the moment. He's played internationally for England. Um, he was kicked out of the academy at age 14 or 15, um, was told by the coaches there he wasn't good enough, um, don't come back. But once again, hugely competitive, um, didn't want to listen to that, still came back um, the next season. Meanwhile, I think there'd been a little bit of a changeover of some of the coaches and the new coaches that came in gave him another chance. And he just kept improving and, and yeah, like really, um, yeah, just showed that desire to to be a top footballer, a top sportsman. Um, then there's, a, I guess, another player could talk about um, who's followed a slightly different path, but who has been a top player and a player I used to really enjoy watching um, was Ryan Mason. So a top-level player um, as, a, as a youngster, perhaps the, um, the spire, the spider um, within the web, um, also a very good finisher, went on, played for Tottenham, um, played internationally for England, was then sold off by Tottenham for yeah, a quite vast amount of money to a club called Hull, um, where he had a career-ending head injury, and now he's gone back into the club 
um, I guess, as part of their alma mater and, and is working um, in a coaching capacity initially with the academy and now is um, with the first team, working with Antonio Conte, um, yeah, helping coach the first team. So I guess there, there's some like fairly um, diverse backgrounds and some fairly diverse pathways and even outcomes. But as I've mentioned, I think that one of those key traits is that desire to improve and a fierce competitiveness. And that doesn't necessarily have to manifest itself in they're going to win absolutely everything that they do from age, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 through to 16, 17. Maybe failure along the way um, in terms of results is actually a good thing, um, so long as they um, and the coaches that coach them continue to pursue avenues that make them better as an individual. And, yeah, that, that was certainly, yeah, things that I saw within Tottenham's Academy when I was there. All yours, Berger. Did, did you notice um, going from Tottenham to QPR, um, I know you were the first team at QPR, but... Uh, having no doubt a lens and an interest in the academy, I, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on a, a fairly affluent academy in Tottenham and with all due respect to QPR, a probably less well-resourced academy. Did you notice uh, a huge difference in the service provision to the players or the opportunities for those players at QPR compared to compared to top, Tottenham? I'm conscious of the fact that QPR are your current employers. So, um, yes, but, uh, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, I suppose my my um, my role at QPR. I, I think I, I was really fortunate in that I was coming into an environment where I already knew quite a lot of the staff. So, incidentally, a lot of the staff at QPR um, had previously worked at Tottenham. Um, whether it be yeah the the doctor who's head of medical services, Imtiaz Ahmed, um, the sporting director Les Ferdinand, or the technical director. Um, uh, Chris Ramsey. So um, I, I guess already there was a little bit of a link there. Um, I perhaps knew how they worked. Um, and I know you talk about opportunities for young players. Um, you could probably say, and, and there was quite a lot of um, players within the first team squad at QPR at that time who had come from Tottenham. I think it was five out of the first team squad of 25. So that, that was another group of people I guess that I knew there so you may also like you may then be able to say um, they have had more opportunities um, in terms of bridging that divide and that really difficult period where players are maybe from 18 to 21 22 where all right what are you playing are you playing academy are you playing under 21s or under 23s which almost serves as like a B team so if you're talking about opportunity, well, opportunity to actually be a professional player, um, it, it, to me, they, you could perhaps say they get more opportunities um, yeah, to, to go into that squad and to actually be playing and be playing match minutes, which is like such a big driver um, for young players. And it stops them being in, in that void. Um, in terms of actual, uh, I guess, tangible facilities, perhaps, which I, I don't know whether that's what you're inferring, um, I, I would say, yeah, the, the pitches are certainly different. Um, and that's something that even if you look through the championship, a lot of the clubs now, they're, they're trying to go into 
um, maybe facilities that are, are similar to what a lot of the Premier League clubs were going into perhaps 10, 15 years ago. So perhaps they're, they're just a little bit behind in terms of the funding um, for those sort of facilities. I know at QPR at the moment, um, we're, we're building a facility that will um, that's probably been based a little bit on yeah, some of Spurs' training ground, um, some of the aspects of, of the training ground. So, yeah, the, I think that's that's probably a little bit of a change. Um, and I, I do think, though, some of the, the travel opportunities for players where maybe in a, a Premier League academy they might get to go overseas four, five, six times for foreign tournaments, I think that's perhaps a little bit more difficult. Um, for some of those championship clubs, just with the resources that they have and, and, and with staffing and even more to the point, probably the invitations that they get from foreign tournaments. So at Spurs, we would yeah, get offered um, yeah, various incentives to bring the players across or, or they would pay um, just because uh, they would pay things like flights, accommodation, um, extra spending money just simply because of the, the name of the club um, and maybe some of the the press and publicity they would subsequently get at their tournaments. So, yeah, there, there is a difference. Um, but then I think it's about um, being innovative as a club and where there maybe are, are negatives or can you turn some of those things into positives, such as, as what I said with regards to getting maybe opportunities to play first team at a younger age, perhaps. Yeah, I guess... Um... That, that's probably what I was inferring. I think uh, people in the area, and obviously there's restrictions around where you can send your kids and uh, Tottenham and Arsenal, for example, are, um, are competing for, for similar similar talent um, and they're probably at a similar level of resourcing, but, but perhaps there might be uh, better opportunities at, um, uh, to progress through the system at uh, less well-resourced clubs, um, depending on you know, where they're located and things like that. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to speak to you about, Aaron, is, um, I, as you know, we uh, I've tried to poach you a couple of times <laughs> at different places that I've been um, because of your enthusiasm and talent and just um, uh, desire to develop kids. It's one of your uh, great strengths. And I guess there's a lot of people in the academy system that just long for first team and see the academy system as a as a stepping stone, whereas you sort of demonstrated to, I think, is 11 years at Tottenham? Yeah, 11 at Tottenham, and I had three and a half at Fulham before that. So, yeah, almost 15 years, I guess, working in the academy system. Yeah, what, what is it that, um, uh, that attracted you to the academy system? And I guess your advice for people working in that system, um, because you're, you're, you've, you've done it for so long, as opposed to immediately thinking, no, I want to be with first team. What would be the benefits for a practitioner like like yourself and myself and Brookie in the academy setup versus, you know, just this desire to be uh, in first team? Yeah, that, I mean that that's a really good point, and um, I, I guess a part of it, I guess as well, is the is the environment that you work in, um, and the most important part of that, I think, is who you actually work with. So I, I was very lucky that when I went in um, to Fulham, I, I got to work with, yes, some fantastic medics. Um, Chris Bradshaw was there, like from the sports medicine side. So was Steve Lewis, 
um, who now works with Brighton, um, someone who you probably know um, from home um, who works in Australia, Martin Wallen. Um, he worked at Fulham at that point in time and, yes, yeah, spent a lot of time with me and mentored me. Um, the likes of Steve Nance as well, who yeah been a World Cup winning like S and C. Wow, yeah. Yep. Um, so I, I was really lucky in that I worked in a great environment with people that were fantastic at their job, but they were also really good fun, um, and they would also share their knowledge. So I guess first of all, as a, as a young clinician that's trying to yeah embark on your career, I, I was in like a, an incredible environment really for for learning. Um, from yeah, those sort of clinicians. And then if you add in um, that I was working with fantastic coaches that were also really good people, um, like people like Paul Clement that now works at Everton and has been at PSG, um, Real Madrid um, and, and Chelsea, I, I was really very, very lucky. So it, it was a great environment. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I was learning loads and exposed to what I felt was a really, really good team environment. And um, but perhaps as well, like in, in my background, both of my parents are primary school teachers. So um, I'd been exposed to that um, desire to help young players. My dad had done a fair bit of sports coaching as well um, through the Shire and around the, around the tracks around there. So... Um, yeah, it was, it was something that I believed in um, and then going on to, to Tottenham, um, following on from that, it was, yeah, it was probably a, another level again in terms of um, looking at some of the things that were offered for the players and their exposure to an international program. Um, so I, I was in a really, really good environment with, yeah, amazing coaches, amazing people, um, good facilities and and you also think of, uh, and I've heard you speak to a few people that work in academia and some of the studies that they get to do and um, what, do, what are people looking for when they're doing all these um, studies and whatever, well, they're looking for numbers. So here you are in an academy system where you've got 15 to 20 um, young players across like eight part-time age groups and then, yeah, maybe two lots of 20 to 25 in, in full-time age groups. You've got a vast number um, of young athletes, young footballers that are, are very keen to get better. Their parents are keen for them to get better. Um, and that's either a lot of injuries that you're going to treat or um, probably what I worked out fairly early um, and with the benefit of someone like Martin Wallen, that's a number of injuries that you want to try and help to try and prevent. Um, because that, that's going to maximise their amount on the pitch and maximise their amount of development opportunities. So it, I think it gave me an opportunity to perhaps have my little hypotheses and, and little theories. Um, uh, so think about some of the research that you read, all right, how can I apply this? Um, and, and then go on that feedback loop, I guess, of at times making mistakes, but then yeah, uh, reflecting on that and thinking, all right, how can we get better? Um, how can I get better? Um, you think of the number of case studies you're exposed to over the course of a year um, and perhaps compare that to what a young clinician might get if they're working in a first team environment or a reserve team environment. Um, the number of actually, uh, I, I guess, um, case libraries that they end up having, um, I think in an academy setting is much, much more. I, I also quite like the concept 
um, of in that setting, you tended, especially at that point in time, maybe 15 years ago, you tend to be a little bit more of a generalist. So you learn a lot um, about a lot of different things. So you, you might have to um, be a little bit humble and be the assistant kit man, but you might also create um, a really amazing relationship with the coaches on the back of that, which means that they're going to listen to you a little bit more. I know I've spoken to you at different times, Burjo, about how do you actually tap into the coach? How do you actually earn their trust? Well, I, I think if you're side by side with them um, and you're showing that you're working hard and, and you're perhaps away on trips and there's not that many other staff away on trips where in a first team you've got four or five coaches, you've got um, so many other staff there, I, I think it, it gives you a really good opportunity to create a good relationship um, with the coaches and, and for that matter with the players because they're, they're, they're key people um, in your learning opportunities as well. So I, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan um, of yeah, young physios, sports scientists, sports therapists, etc. Um, yeah, getting opportunities to, to work within the academy as opposed to going yeah, straight away into a first team scene where oftentimes things are going to be dictated to you a little bit more um, you'll have far less autonomy. Um, and, and I think also if you consider what your skill base is when you go into a first-team setting, I think you're, you've got far more experiences if you've worked for a significant amount of time in a, in a more developmental sense um, before you go into that first-team environment. But, it, look, it, it's different for different people. Um, it worked well for me. Maybe part of that was just down to the environment that I was in, but I think there's certainly huge, huge benefits from working in um, academy and youth sport, particularly in terms of exposure. I remember uh, when I was at uh, at Liverpool, I had quite a lot to do with the, with the academy, and and one of the great challenges was that. Uh, getting the kids to do anything other than play football. I mean, all they wanted to do was get out in the pitch and play football. They weren't interested in prevention. They weren't interested in, uh, in fitness stuff. They weren't interested in the gym. I mean, what, uh, what was your approach to, uh, to that? How did you get these kids uh, to do? You mentioned the importance of prevention before. I mean, how did you get them to buy into that sort of thing? Yeah, well, it, I guess it, it becomes um, a, a part of the culture and it's it's really everyone. So, all right, what, what's your academy manager like? Um, I, I know one of the academy managers um, at, at Liverpool now, Alex Inglethorpe, and he's fantastic. Um, worked with him at Spurs. But um, so your academy manager, what, your coaches, um, your sports scientists, um, your physios, I, I think they all need to try and um, invest in that as like you need the education officers on board because... Um, yeah, things like food, sleep, nutrition, like they're, they're so, so important. Um, psychologists, they're becoming a, a lot bigger part of academies now or whether that's from psychologists dealing directly with players or whether that's from the sports psychologists trying to yeah, indoctrinate um, various techniques and give the coaches and staff different ideas. Um, but I think it needs to be very different, um, Peter, like in terms of what age group you're dealing with. So we made quite a few mistakes along the way at different times. So I can still remember um, we had under nines and under tens um, on foam rollers at one particular stage. And I remember talking to the academy manager at the time and he's a bit like, what the F? 
blah, blah, blah. Can we not make better use of this time? And, and he was completely right. So you need to, yes, yeah, suck it up sometimes um, and you need to change things. And um, one of the key things that we probably did, and I haven't broached this in the talk tonight, but these academies, um, even though it's for soccer or football, they're running for 42 or 44 weeks of the year. Now, if you think about the Australian sports system, well, none of your sports really go for that long because I think there's two very distinct seasons with the like summer and winter sports. So what we probably hypothesised, and I think what a lot of the, the different clubs around as well, was that, that at a younger age, a lot of the kids are missing out on key developmental opportunities because they're specialising um, perhaps into football too early. So where we would never discourage people um, or, or young players or their parents um, that from um, doing other sports, we actively um, encouraged them and developed a multi-sports program um, in a lot of the younger ages through from, well, uh, yeah, quite strongly from 9 through to 13, 14. Um, and even the scholars that I was dealing with at, at that particular time, like we, we'd try and find ways to innovate um, and incorporate other sports just into their, their general development. Obviously, as you get older, you're specialising a lot more into the football, but it, it might be that we're going over to like the US to a tournament to Florida in December. So what would we do? We'd muck around with an American football um, for three or four weeks leading up to it. Um, the boys might be playing some basketball like down in the dome um, on an astro surface, but there might be a few basketball rings put up um, they'd play around with badminton. Um, probably with my background as well, I'd have them throwing a, a few rugby league balls around, um, which may have raised a few eyebrows. Um, but the boys enjoyed it. So it, it just gave them um, other things to focus on that maybe didn't feel like there was that really early level of professionalism and specialisation um, it kept them having fun, yet at the same time, it, it helped aspects of their development that maybe they were missing out on because they weren't doing the variety of sports that you get in places sometimes like um, Australia and the US. Um, then I, I think as you go through the age groups, it, you start to get a little bit more focused um, and you're perhaps looking at different things like peak height velocity. Um, so we, we would do a fair bit there where we'd look at, all right, who's growing um, at quite rapid rates? Do we need to screen them, especially a lot of their biothroidal muscles? Do we need to work on their balance a little bit more at that particular time? Um, what needs to be our, our focus maybe in the gym? Is it so much on strength? Um, is it on, on loaded strength? Is it on body weight strength? Is it on movement patterns? Um, as they're trying to go through all those developmental changes. And, yeah, we, we had uh, some fantastic sports scientists there led by Matt Allen um, who did some really good things, I, I think, on yeah, movement skills and, and movement strategies as well as imparting a really good strength program. And I, you say it's good. How do you know it's good? All right, well, what are their physical parameters? How are they improving? Um, are they improving as players? Are we keeping them on the pitch? What's their player availability? So it, you're in that yeah, constant state of, of reflection, that constant state of monitoring, um, which you hope that yeah, probably all, all departments in, within the club are doing. So, yeah, I, I guess to sum that up, um, yeah, can we make it fun? Um, can we make it age-specific? Um, can we focus on 
yeah, deficiencies um, that might be there because of a lack of multi-sports? Um, and, and can we also incorporate sometimes um, the coaches into that multi-sport? So they might have some really good ideas on um, yeah, how you could have an invasion game of rugby league, which is a little bit more three-dimensional um, than perhaps the, the two-dimensional, which might incorporate some of the things um, that they want yeah, tactically um, yeah, while still, yeah, I guess, progressing yeah, different aspects of their coordination, upper body core, et cetera, um, as opposed to just always doing a kicking sport. Did you have um, uh, much difficulty getting uh, the playing multi-sports into the academy setup? We, we know of some, some successful academies from around the world who do that. Um, but there's also some resistance to a, a young footballer playing badminton or, or throwing a rugby ball or anything like that. Was was there much resistance in getting that set up? Yeah. Do you know, I, I would probably say no, um, or certainly no that I was aware of. I don't know whether um, I was just going on in a state of bliss. Yes, there were hmm. comments, um, and sometimes there, there were different comments um, from even people on the first team side of the building. Um, that maybe perhaps didn't like necessarily understand um, you know, what we're trying to do. So that's something that we, we had to try and improve in an education sense. But we're also really fortunate um, in that we had really open-minded coaches and progressive coaches um, yeah, who were led by a, a really good academy manager and, and senior academy coaches. And, yeah, I think they were like fairly reflective guys. They, they realised that, um, not everyone is going to end up being a footballer, that you have to prepare them um, for other parts of life. And I think also some of the coaches actually enjoyed the fact that some of the really elite players at football were then being exposed maybe for a lack of skill or a lack of um, ability or, or coordination in some other sports. So it, it took some of those kids out of their comfort zone a little bit, um, which... I think is is the key really, or one of the keys for yeah continued progression and and success ultimately, because no one's going to keep winning, are they? Mm. Like from day dot through to yeah when they're a first team player or a pro. So yeah, I I think we were just surrounded by um, really good coaches that really embraced it, and that's obviously so important. And then we had to make sure as well that we were like very organised and, and things were quite slick. So, yeah, we had to um, yeah, make sure as a sports science and sports medicine department, yeah, we were bang on for that and that we enlisted help of coaches at different times. And, and how do you, what do you think the best way to define success is? You mentioned um, player availability. Um, is it first team appearances and then perhaps QPR would be better, might be better um, in that regard than, than Spurs who might buy players in um, or Arsenal or Liverpool or something like that. How, how would you define success of an academy? There's physical metrics, of course, but yes. um, some could argue that they might not transfer over. Um, that's a discussion for another podcast, but how, how would you define it if you were in charge of determining the success of a high-performance department and medical department in an academy? 
Yeah, that's a good point. And we were really encouraged to see see ourselves and indeed everyone in the academy like was encouraged to see themselves this way as a player developer. So um, the, the academy had a, a philosophy that, or, or in terms of aims and goals that were threefold. So one of those um, was to prepare um, players for Champions League or Premier League football. Um, so that's probably the, the top of the pyramid. Um, and then, yeah, maybe in that second tier was can we produce players um, that are going to be professional players that the club could perhaps um, sell for money and, and make money and so forth at whatever division that would be. Um, and then, like, the third part of the tier I also, like, really liked and it really struck a chord with me was, like, can we give, like, young, young people improved opportunities um, and make them better players and better people? So, yeah, I, I think, and, and that, if you're talking about, I guess, tangible measures on that third one, well, can you get people coming back to perhaps then work in your academy? And do, do they see um, that academy as part of their alma mater? So I know in the time that I was there, there were people coming back um, who'd been players that were working in sports science, people that were coming back um, to work as coaches, um, there was a, a young player at the time um, who actually went off and studied medicine and we've now got him um, yeah, working as a, a young medic at QPR because, um, yeah, there, there was certainly a lack of those that were inspired to go on into sports medicine and sports physio. So I had to do a little bit of reflection as to why that was happening. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, it, certainly if you can... Um, First and foremost, obviously, like you need to consider, all right, why is the academy there? The academy is there ultimately to try and produce first-team players. So, yeah, first-team appearances, um, yeah, that's massive um, and that's something that academies should embrace and clubs should embrace. Um, and then, yeah, okay, can you make money? All right, what, what's the money worth of the players that you've produced? Um, and then three, uh, I guess the third tier is that that bit more holistic look at things. Um yeah, which, which is also extremely rewarding. And I know that that gave the coaches um, a real buzz as well. Um, but I, I think you have to have yeah all, all three elements covered um, for me, and that creates a, a really good environment. And are the measures of success uh, in first team? How are uh, they different? To that yeah I think there's a, there's a couple of obvious ones obviously but, but how do you think you ought to be judged now uh, as a as a lead physio in a department yeah I think um, I mean I, I, I was talking about this a, a little while ago actually um, so we came I think it was ninth last year um, so do I then look at all right is the best physio in the league well that's the one um, that worked with the team that came first. Hmm. Um, second and third, because ultimately, at a first team level, like it, I mean, you, you know it as good as anyone. Like it, it is about winning. Um, all right, what can you do to contribute towards that that winning process? Um, I guess what are the tangibles? Um, that, yeah, that we can contribute to. Okay, availability is a part of that. Um, as a as a sports medic. Um, and physio, you also want to try and minimise um, recurrent injuries. I know we've, we've chatted at different times, Burjo, and we're probably of a similar belief um, that that's very difficult to yeah, cut that out completely. 
um, and that sometimes those those recurrences are going to occur, albeit you want to try and minimise them while still uh, obviously pushing the boundaries um, and go, and going to the edge because sometimes to get someone back a game or two early, um, a game or two earlier than I guess the traditional timeframes can make a huge difference. Um, so yeah. I, I think that that's a part of it. Um, I think physios also have to look at themselves as, if you're working in sport, as performance physios. So, yeah, the, the various, like, physical metrics. Say when someone comes back from an injury, I, I think it's right to try and take some pride in, in making sure that players are prepared, um, not just to return to training, but to return to play at a really high level. Um, but, yeah, I think it, everyone in that, first team environment you, you want to have as much success as possible um perhaps it is part of that success does that mean the club improving every year and consistently going up the ladder and getting more points and um yeah being closer to i guess in a um, championship level um being closer to promotion something we look at sometimes is our player availability um relative to the opposition's player availability I think that's hugely multifactorial, um, but so are a lot of the things that we that we all look at. Um, but if you can contribute to gaining an advantage on on your opposition, then then that's a really good thing. While obviously making sure you keep an eye on the ball like within your own environment, um, of making sure you're maximising what everyone within your own environment can do, and improving player confidence with niggles. Um, all right, how many niggles progress to be yeah, full-blown injuries? Um, like Matt Wallen's done some like fantastic yep. research on that that I've really enjoyed um, and we've discussed as a department. So I, I think there's a, a number of, of different things there that, that can be looked at and that need to be looked at season to season or um, halfway through a season or, or sometimes even more often than that in terms of patterns. Aaron, uh, sorry, we're almost out of time. But I just want to... Uh finish with one last one. I mean, you, you talked about your story about how you decided it was time to go to England, basically to see all your mates by the sound of it. But, um, what, what, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a second or third year out physio, love my, my football, would love to work in, in the sort of English football environment. What, what advice would you give to, to someone like me about uh, how to sort of uh, go about that? Yeah, um, well, I guess... First of all, um, probably come over to the UK. So come over to the UK, um, get yourself a job. You probably won't go straight into a full-time job um, within a, a football or, or a rugby academy, I would imagine. Um, just get, get a job, whether it be private practice, NHS, I think over here is a great environment, like really good um, socially and for developing your, your network and your links. Um, and then from there, apply. Apply to work in a voluntary, hopefully not at voluntary capacity, because I, I don't want to sell the um, profession short, but uh, apply to try and work somewhere. There's often a lot of casual jobs um, that come up in the various academies um, around the place, whether they be rugby or football um, or, or any of the other sports over here. And then if you can get in there in a part-time um, or, or casual sense, just make sure you're really enthusiastic. Whenever there's an opportunity um, to work an extra shift, say, yes, I'll do it. Um, be on time, be enthusiastic, do a good job, create a good link um, with players, parents um, and coaches alike and, and communicate as well as you can. 
Um, and, and yeah, like do it in a very natural sense. Um, yeah, be respectful um, of the environment. Um, don't, don't look down on the environment. Just, yeah, really like get out of it, yeah, what, what you can. Um, and then from there, hopefully you, you'll get a full-time job that, that might, yeah, become an opportunity. So, yeah, I think just get yourself over here. Um, I appreciate that's maybe a little bit more difficult post-COVID, um, but yeah, get yourself over here, get yourself working, um, like in, in a good, stable job. Work um, if you can part-time um, in some sporting capacity, and things will hopefully flow on from there. There's lots of good continuing education over here, and that's perhaps another way that you can create various links as well. Well, it clearly worked for you, Aaron, and uh, you've had a fascinating. Uh career so far and uh, I look forward to following you uh, in the future uh, to wherever you may you may go um, thanks for your time today I think it's been really interesting for uh, for everyone not just physios but I think anyone involved in, in high performance to give us an insight into that uh, that vast academy system and uh, and how it works has been uh, been terrific so thank you again and uh, all the best and thanks for uh, for being on the Brookie and Berger podcast thank you very much Brookie and Berger it was a pleasure and an honour thank you Okay, see you guys. Bye-bye.